The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data. Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, a Ben J. Shap LLC production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome back to the MarTech Podcast. Today, we're going to discuss how to leverage influencers and reviews to boost the visibility and credibility of your brand. Joining us is Joe Sinkwitz, who's the founder and CEO of IntelliFluence, which is a SaaS tool that helps brands discover the right influencers for your product, pitch them, and get honest reviews that turn into sales. Prior to launching IntelliFluence, Joe has worked at an SEO agency and a content marketplace, so he has a wide set of experiences that has brought him to us today. Joe is going to walk us through his view of the importance of reviews and reputation management. Here's the first interview with Joe Sinkwitz, the CEO of IntelliFluence. Joe, welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Happy to be here. It's great to have you. I want to jump right into the details, but before we get too far down the path, tell us a little bit about you, your background, and about IntelliFluence so we know where you're coming from. I consider myself a black hat Eagle Scout with an MBA. So I like to have that stance of aggressive marketing paired with understanding of business, the tech of it. My undergrad was actually in information systems as well as operations management. And then the Eagle Scout side of things, like I don't want to screw anyone over. We try to be very honest and straightforward with our approach. We're just aggressive with what we do. I got to pick that apart before we go on to IntelliFluence. To me, Eagle Scouts and Black Hats seem like they would be in opposing gangs. How do you reconcile the two? Not at all. So if you're familiar with Silk Road, that was actually a Black Hat Eagle Scout. I would probably say Silk Road, which was the Bitcoin-based marketplace for kind of illicit activities that the FBI closed down. Yes. That to me feels more Black Hat than it feels Eagle Scout. Well, I think what people get a misconception about is... All an Eagle Scout is is someone that figured out how to tick off a lot of requirements. And a lot of them are very difficult requirements and you're doing it at a fairly young age in your life. But to be able to accomplish that really just means that you have the wherewithal to work within a given system. Now, the black hat nature of it, I just find it mostly humorous that that's what he chose to do. I don't know. I like to throw out the black hat Eagle Scout with an MBA simply because it catches people a little bit off guard. Where you're like, well, how did you come to be? I tried a lot of things. I tried my hand at developing tax software and I did it for a little while and realized I really did not like that. 
I enjoyed sales and marketing. I really gravitated towards that digital marketing side of things because it allowed me to pair the technical nature with the business acumen that I like. Okay. So it seems like you've had, like I mentioned in our intro, a diverse path. And I know that you, the things that are on your LinkedIn are working for copy press, and then you worked for a digital reputation management agency related to SEO. And now you're on to IntelliFluence. Tell us a little bit about IntelliFluence and what led you to start this company. So the reason I started IntelliFluence is I was a CMO for a large consumer packaged goods company. And we were in a space that was prohibited for paid advertising. So if we wanted to do Facebook ads or Google AdWords, we weren't allowed to market the product. It was verboten. So we had to figure out a way around that to use the medium without their explicit consent. The only really way to do that was to use influencers, to find prominent people in that particular industry and put our product in their hands. Well, by nature of finding a disruption, it turned out that the only real way to deal with them was to go through agencies that wanted to charge a 10 or 20K minimum per month to work, as well as an additional 20 to 25% transaction fee on everything. I realized at that point that, hey, there's a marketplace immediately just to, if we're just create a database of contacts. And then I figured, why are we limiting it to just the celebrities of the world? Why are we not trying to tackle anyone that wants to play in the influencer game? So I tried to flip this concept on its ear to where we were able to price it low enough to work with brands of all sizes, but as well as bring on and onboard the micro-influencers and provide them with a tool set to grow so I could benefit from the overall network effect. And that's kind of how I backed into this. So I left that CMO role at the time, which is not on LinkedIn, and decided to give this go in August of 2016. So it's been a very rapid two years of growth. We're now the second largest warm network in the U.S. Interesting. So essentially, you had advertising restrictions on you from your previous brand. I would love to hear about why they couldn't advertise or what the general niche was without going into too much detail. Let's call it vaping. Okay. So you're in a product category that social networks and general advertising is forbidden. And you stumbled upon the idea that to market this product, you were able to use influencers that helped you understand that there's a marketplace here. And so now you've developed a company around connecting brands with influencers. One of the things that I noticed on the IntelliFluence website is that you talk a lot about reputation management and reviews. Tell me about why that is so important for brands and for marketers. It has a couple of different reasons why I view it as important. There's the curation aspect of it where if you're not managing the overall review process, you're just leading it up the chance. So some of it's just monitoring it, just understanding what are people actually saying about you on the mediums that contribute to the ultimate sale down the road. So in the case of, say, Amazon, it's very straightforward. If you have negative reviews going on, that's going to impact your ability to sell the product because the primary variables for Amazon ranking are sales velocity, reviews, and returns. So managing reviews there is fairly straightforward. The more good reviews you have, the better you tend to do, so long as it's not too spiking and you trip a filter. For something like Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, it's slightly different, but it's still the same concept where if someone's stumbling upon your product and they see it in a negative light, it's very hard to overcome. 
if they have a preconceived notion of what you are and how you operate, you're going to have to have a significant amount of education that you're spending in terms of marketing dollars to get them to understand the product the way that you want to have it presented as. So by using influencers to leave an honest review, I never say that you should have a paid positive review. I almost always prefer do it in an honest nature and it'll tend to be positive anyways. Most people just act that way. That allows you to put that product out in the frame of reference that you want to talk about. You can ask, hey, I'm doing this phone product. I want you to talk about the display resolution. How do you like the display? Please limit it to that. And then you'll have a review catered towards that experience. And maybe that's really important because of the market that you're targeting. Or if you're targeting a very young and less affluent socioeconomic market, you might really hit on the price points and how this does everything you need in a smartphone that the competitors do at a fraction of the price. And that allows you to try to frame that overall sales concept for them. I like to view reviews as just one piece of an overall campaign. I like to do something called compulsion marketing, where I'm trying to hit various psychological triggers. So at the end of that ultimate campaign, they feel a strong compulsion to where I have to buy this product. So that just kind of fits into the early top of funnel stuff. You're looking to get them to see that review from someone they trust, someone that's going to influence them. That's where it really comes in handy. So a couple of things that stick out to me for what you're saying is that, first off, the reason for why reviews are so important, for example, for e-commerce, the positive nature of the reviews can be quantified. And so that factors into things like Amazon's algorithm, right? Like how are you viewed publicly is matched with how much can you sell and how many of the products come back. And that's really what helps you rank in a platform like Amazon and other e-commerce companies. You also mentioned that there's the idea of curating your first impression or having some social proof to help do lead generation. Are there any other ways that reviews are impactful on people's business? Absolutely. So you could look at it also in terms of the search marketplace. You can view the creation of positive reviews, whether they exist on a blog or because we're talking about SaaS. You can look at something like G2 Crowd or a lot of those marketplaces that are trying to help individuals do their research before purchasing a SaaS product. By having the reviews there, that's an additional spot that might exist when someone's querying your brand or your overall brand category. So that is another way that you can use reviews as a sales tool, as well as a reputational tool within search, as well as something that can help prevent any negative stuff out there from surfacing if you have enough positive stuff to drown it out. Right. Essentially, there's a content play with reviews where you're getting user-generated content, which has value in terms of your organic reach and SEO. And you can also curate some of that content as well. Absolutely. Okay. You mentioned a couple other things in the introduction to why reviews were important. You know, sometimes you have to frame the conversation in a way where you're giving somebody something specific to review, which is going to lead them more likely to leaving a positive review. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Mutinex, ready to take your team from I think to I know. Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, the marketing mixed modeling platform that makes measuring ROI fast, easy, and cost-effective. 
Request a demo at mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Time for a one-minute break to hear from our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. In 1919, John Wanamaker said, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half. Well, the advertising landscape has changed since then, and instead of reaching your audience on two channels, you're probably reaching them on 20. Turns out John didn't know how easy he had it. But that doesn't mean that you should give up on striving towards marketing effectiveness. No matter how complex your marketing strategy is, Mutinex Growth OX is the market mix modeling platform that measures the impact of marketing on your bottom line. Mutinex's market mix modeling platform calibrates your insights against the latest market conditions so you can make media and marketing investment decisions confidently and quickly. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, your best decision starts here. To learn more about Mutinex, go to mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Okay, here's the rest of today's interview. Outside of just framing the conversation appropriately, how do you handle when somebody gives you a mediocre or even a bad review? Well, there's a couple of ways that you could approach that. I ultimately tell brands just to take that as positive feedback as much as you possibly can and seek to change what that feedback ultimately told you. So let's say I received somewhat negative feedback about my product. The best possible thing I could do is improve the product Go back in that influencer, have them review the updated product, and you're going to be blown away. Because what ends up happening is the influencer says, they listen to their community, look at all the positive changes they made. I didn't like it before, now I love it. And that is a great narrative that you can push. The worst thing you could do is fight the influencer. Say, I don't agree with you, you're wrong, you don't know what you're doing then all you're going to do is alienate someone that represents maybe your key buying demographic. So the best thing you can do is get on their side, let them know that you hear them and make your improvements. This is also why when I'm doing any initial influencer marketing for like a pop-up brand, I'm looking to start small. I even use it as a way to do like pre-launch product testing, where I might do reviews of different variations of the product, whether it be the color or the lot size, or maybe a critical feature of the product to determine what does the market seem to want versus what are my own preconceived notions. And then from that, make the necessary changes, then scale. So I could view the negative feedback as a pre-scale situation and use that to improve. Yeah. I do think that in general, when you're getting reviews from customers, I absolutely hear you in terms of when someone gives you negative feedback, you need to accept that that's how people view your product. And they are not necessarily wrong or just saying it because they're angry. They're actually highlighting an issue that needs to be fixed. So actively engaging people that leave a negative review to try to reassure them that you're going to work to resolve the problem is something that's visible for people that are making a decision about your product down the road. So act quickly, be responsible, but don't be defensive. That to me is the takeaway for how to handle negative reviews. You mentioned compulsion marketing. What do you mean by that? So compulsion marketing was a concept that I created several years back for a conference in Las Vegas by the name of Ungagged. 
And the concept there was to take multiple marketing tactics and string them along to where I divide influence marketing in three buckets, aspirational, which is like celebrity, authoritative, and then peer. So what I would want to do is I'd want to try to get a product in the hands of something that you might aspire towards. Everyone wants to be like Michael Jordan, but we can't be like him. We can only purchase the products that he might also have purchased in the past as a conduit to being like him. So let's use a product here. At a celebrity level, let's say it's a jersey. Dennis G from Fanatics is the one that introduced us together. So I'm going to give him a shout out because they do a great job of this stuff. Hi, Dennis. You might have the jersey for the University of Arizona Wildcats basketball team. That's my team. That's my wife's team. Well, you know, I like your wife a lot more than you then. How about that? Me too. (laughs) (laughs) So if you have a celebrity wearing your jersey, DeAndre Ayton, that's the celebrity influence. That's an expensive jersey. It is, but it's probably going to be worth it if he signs it. The next level down, the authoritative, that would be more along the lines of someone that is like a fashion expert or someone that's able to say with authority that this is made very well. It'll last a very long period of time. So you have a trigger of, I want it because that guy has it. The next is this person saying it's great. Then you have a peer level. And the beauty of peer is everyone is a peer influencer. You influence your spouse. We all are influenced by our neighbors as well as provide the influence back to them. So there's these initial triggers where you might see a product and you might have the conception that, hey, I see this. It's out in the wild. That looks great. It looks like it's a decent quality. And then you start shifting into whether the content that might be created around a celebrity influence, maybe it exists in videos. You see multiple touch points. Maybe you see it later on recirculated out through native ad networks. Maybe you start to see it in blog posts that you're already reading because they're attacking the right demographic that you're interested in. All these multiple touch points from the desire to be like Mike down to your neighbor. If all your neighbors, then they're all U of A grads and they love basketball like a good U of A grad does. If you see that they're all wearing that jersey, the likelihood of you wanting that jersey is significantly elevated versus just seeing it once on DeAndre 8. It's just playing to the mind of the buyer of they have it, why don't you? And as long as you keep hitting them with those triggers of where they're seeing the product all the way through where they expend their online experience, if they're spending a lot of time on Reddit and that just happens to be where your buying market is, that's where you'd want to have a lot of the influence existing. If their buying market is Facebook, then there. So it's just a matter of determining ahead of time what the buyer persona looks like, who influences them who's authority for your type of product, who their peers are, and just putting it in front of them and then essentially attaching on a content marketing strategy after that to support those efforts. And then those multiple touch points just result in a compulsion to purchase. That's really interesting. What I'm hearing with the three segments that you mentioned with compulsion, marketing, aspiration, authoritative, and peer, essentially aspiration, you're creating a mindset for someone to achieve to get a specific product or service or have something that they consider to be valuable because they see it on somebody that they respect. The authoritative component of it is really about credibility, right? Is this a decision they can rationalize? And then with your peer group, it's, is this something that I can accept that other people have accepted and already validated the decision for you? Much more eloquent than me. Thank you. (laughs) 
I don't know if it's much more eloquent. I'm really just trying to <laughs> consolidate down for everybody that's listening. And the repetition sometimes is useful for people that are hearing the podcast. So to me, it seems like the review section of the compulsion marketing paradigm that you've mentioned really fits into the peer group. It's that other people are making this decision and here's how they're evaluating the decision they made. Am I thinking about this the right way? Or is it also another way to rationalize the decision and it's about the authoritative piece as well? I think also it's a distinction too in terms like the pricing tiers. Like if you're selling a random product, let's say it's like diet tea. That's one that's pretty popular on Instagram. To get celebrities to push your product is very expensive. And you might have a great ROI when you back it out, but it's really hard to do. Getting someone that's like a diet expert to push it, it's going to cost less, but it's also still pretty expensive. Getting a peer to do it, you might be able to do it for just the cost of the product. So you're able to use that and build upon it. So you might have, like, and it's a generalized product, having those reviews in the wild from the buyer persona of the product that just happens to be like me is almost always sufficient. And then from there, if the numbers back out, then you'll usually see someone jump higher and try to get Kylie Jenner to promote the product at $700,000 post. That happens. That's generally how it works. That's also why you see the celebrities push really general products that have a broad appeal versus something very specific. You don't see the Kardashian family pushing Salesforce. I mean, they're probably pushing Salesforce, but it's so different from most of their followers, it's too specific. As you go down to the peer level, of course, you might have specific individuals promoting something like Salesforce because if they're identified as being similar to the buyer persona, maybe they're just two years experience inside sales exec in San Fran, that might be perfect. So that's kind of how that ends up segmenting out, why you'd select different people over others. Is there a volume of reviews? The sort of way that I think of reviews is the, I don't know if it's the eBay mechanism, but the five-star review when you're looking at what does a five-star versus four versus three mean? And then you look at how many reviews people have. So for like a product listing on Yelp, really that's how I am balancing decision-making and evaluating the reviews. It's volume and it's average score. Are there any ways to evaluate the number of reviews that you need or what you want your average score to be? If you're looking to manipulate the review score and the volume on a specific marketplace, then absolutely. So for general rule of thumb, what I look to is what your lead competitor has and just try to do 10% more. Something as simple as that. So if it's Amazon, they have 100. My goal is to have 110 over a period of time where my scores is hopefully slightly better, but I have slightly more reviews. If it's something like Yelp, it'd be very similar. I just want to have at least 10% more reviews than they have. If you're starting from scratch, you certainly would not want to just have a ton of reviews all at once. That's very easy to scrub out. But that's really specific to marketplaces. If you look at externally to just mediums, whether you have 10% more of posts on Instagram versus your main competitor may not matter. Because then it's really coming down to who was doing the review more than the number of reviews that were created. Blogs, then it becomes an SEO play. And more is not always better. I look more for the quality of the review itself than anything else for that. 
Interesting. When you talk about the marketplaces, is there any intelligence in terms of what the score needs to be to have a positive impact on your brand? I think of anything below a three-star review on Yelp or Amazon or anywhere that I look, that is not a good product. How do most people evaluate the five-star scoring mechanism? Most people want to see somewhere between four and a five, but I think ultimately the true nature of it is what does not look like an outlier is more important. Let's say it's um, subprime finance. That's a market that I have a ton of experience in. The reviews are never going to be good because the individuals that have to purchase the product are not happy that they're in a situation to begin with, that they purchased the product, and they're probably not happy because they didn't fully understand the terms of the product that they purchased to begin with. So their reviews are going to be handicapped right up the front. So the average review score might be one and a half, two stars. So the company that comes in at a solid three and a half stands out as being far superior. So there's that industry component that really plays a role. But yeah, absolutely. If you're looking on Amazon for something, maybe I'm biased now. But if it's lower than four, I probably don't give it a shot unless there's very, very high number of reviews that are verified reviews and I could sort through and I could make the distinction, this looks real versus this looks fake. Yeah. I'm actually the opposite way on Amazon where if it has a lot of reviews and it's 3.5, I have questions. If it's only got a few reviews and it's 3.5 or 3, that actually could just be one person voicing frustration with how a product works and it could be influenced by the low number. So I give a little bit more lenience for products that don't have a ton of reviews because one person can have so much of an impact, but maybe that's just me. Well, there's also the reality that why did they review it low? I recently purchased a product off of Amazon. It was a Halloween costume. I'm going to be Severus Snape for Halloween. My kids are going to be Harry Potter characters. The problem was this particular manufacturer sizes things really, really weird. And most of the comments were, hey, this costume is very well made, five stars. But there may be the odd one star peppered in every four or five comments that brought it down to about a three star when I purchased the product. I ended up giving it a one star as well because I purchased something that I was told the size of higher. I ended up ordering something like a triple XL. And what came was what you might call a medium. So the product itself was probably perfectly fine, but some aspect of the product resulted in really, really bad scores by some people versus the average score being truly much higher. It's just the aggregate made it look weird. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, when we talk about reviews and we talk about your reputation, it's something that has to actively be managed and you can actively pursue people to review your products. And that's one of the ways to build volume. And when you're getting reviews that are negative, address them, fix your product and make sure that you're being responsive. And over time, you'll be able to work your way out of those negative reviews. But those are things that can really have a huge impact on your business, specifically if you're in a marketplace. And that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to Joe Sinkwitz for joining us in part two of our interview, which we'll publish tomorrow. Joe's going to go into a deep dive into the ways that influencers can help you build your reputation. If you can't wait until our next episode and you'd like to learn more about Joe, you can click on the link to his bio in our show notes or visit his website, intellifluence.com. That's I-N-T-E-L-L-I-F-L-U-E-N-C-E. 
If you're a subscriber to the MarTech Podcast, thanks for being a member of our community. If you have questions, comments, or even if you'd like to be a guest on the show, go to benjshap.com question, and you can leave us a voicemail, which we will potentially use in one of our upcoming episodes on the MarTech Podcast. Or you can find us on our social media accounts. My handle is benjshap, that's B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P on LinkedIn and on Twitter. If you haven't subscribed yet and you want a weekly stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, in addition to part two of our interview with Joe Sinkowitz, we've got some great episodes lined up in the next few weeks. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. Okay, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy. Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.